pizza coma last night or anything like that. Um, if you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with the call to worship. This one is taken from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and hopefully we'll see some connections to our passage in John this morning. I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to the handout in your bulletin, we'll sing Rock of Ages. <coughs>
Our confession of sin this morning is from Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see here in Isaiah that it's clear that Christ, um, he suffered for us. He suffered for our sins. Not only did he suffer for our sins, but he actually took on the punishment that we deserved for our own sins. The, it, and it really stands out in this verses where it says he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Um, when I first started coming to church here, these confessions of sin were different for me. Um, at first they were even a little awkward. Um, but as I continued to read the words in our prayers that we pray together on Sunday mornings, um, it wasn't hard for me to realize my own sin. And we all know that no one has lived a perfect life except for Christ. I would argue no one's lived a perfect day except for Christ. So we can clearly, with a clear conscience, um, repent of our sins daily. So would you please pray with me this prayer of confession? Almighty God, you are the rock of ages. Before time began, you were very God of very God, light of light, and yet in our blindness we have rejected and despised the true light. We have gone our own way, relying on our own wills, our own strength, our own desires. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Remind us of the eternal life we have in you alone. Amen. Would you please turn to hymn number 253 as we sing, Come Thou Fount.
assurance of pardon today is found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this day, Lord, and we thank you for your glorious gospel that you've saved us by the blood of your son, Jesus, Lord. We ask that you would be with us this morning as we worship you. Help us to worship you, God, in spirit and truth today. And Lord, we also lift up to you, uh, Catherine Dunbar, God, this morning. We ask that you would help her to feel better, God. We ask that you would Give their family grace to get through this day, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we also live up to you, uh, the Drew family, Lord, Alyssa and Zach, as they have lost a family member this week, God, we ask that you would comfort them with your love and uh, show us how we can care for them, Lord. And we uh, thank you for your mighty love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Our confession of faith today from the Baptist Catechism, question number 38. What is adoption? Would you please read with me the answer? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles with me, we will continue our study this morning through the Gospel of John. Um, I know I say this a lot, but hopefully it's been edifying for you all. I know a couple of people have um, said that it's been helpful and seeing the connections to the Old Testament to just the rest of Scripture and even just John's Gospel. If some of you have been reading it or even listening to it, um, I know the ESV app has a way you can listen to Scripture. Emily got an app recently called Dwell where you can actually listen to the Scriptures read. So just a, and you just see all these things that John's saying come up and up again. So um, very edifying. So. Um, yeah, last week, what did we talk about? We talked about the Word being in the beginning with God, and we talked about the Word creating all things. That there are two categories. There are things that are created, and there are things that are uncreated, or not created, eternal. There are things that came into existence, and there are things that always existed. Or like we said before, there is creation, and there is God. <laughs> and there's not an overlap of those categories. You are either a creation or you are God. And so we saw in John's 
gospel that the word that he's talking about, this logos, is eternally God and the creator of all things, that he is life, he is the light of the world, all these themes that will come up later in John's gospel. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13, and we'll be introduced to John the Baptist. So there's John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, this morning will be introduced to John the Baptist. And we'll see this contrast between those that... We'll, just, we'll see the contrast between this messenger sent by God and those that reject this message. We'll see the difference between John as a witness to the light and those that reject the light, that shy away from the light, that don't respond to the light. We'll see the difference between John as this great herald of the gospel, and we'll see the world reject this message. And ultimately, we'll, we'll see the contrast between those that do not know God, those that do not receive this gospel, and those that have been born of God. So I'm going to read the passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this time that we get to set aside each week to worship you and rest in the finished work of Christ. And I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Zechariah. And he says, to not despise the day of small things. And the things that we do... Um, the place that we meet, all these things can seem small to us, insignificant. Um, just reading the Word, just coming here and listening to someone talk about the Word, it can seem so small and insignificant, and yet it is a glorious thing that you use to not only bring us to faith, but grow us in the faith. And so we pray this morning that we would not despise the day of small things, but that we would come to believe in the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. We pray all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, beautiful words we have this morning here from John, and it'll be a simple outline this morning. We'll talk about three things. We'll talk about the witness, we'll talk about the world, and we'll talk about the children of God. 
So we'll see the witness in verse, verses 6 through 8. We'll see the world and the response to this witness in verses 9 through 11. And we'll see the children of God in verses 12 through 13. So like I said, John this morning is introducing to us another John. <laughs> John the Baptist. And it's very interesting. John, like I said, there's these other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. They give us similar backgrounds, similar birth stories, similar narratives. And John is always different. <laughs> he gives us, like I said at the beginning, he starts off before the Incarnation, before everything. He goes back to the beginning of time. And it's very similar with John the Baptist here. A lot of the other Gospels will start with John the Baptist, his birth, how he was born. John doesn't do that. We'll see the other Gospel writers talk about his relation to Jesus. He was actually Jesus' cousin. John doesn't say any of that. He jumps right to the beginning, and we see in verse 6 how he does this. He says, there was a man sent from God that came to bear witness. So we're going to see these two distinctive factors of John. First, that he was sent from God, and secondly, him as a witness. That he was sent from God, and that he was a witness. What does it mean to be sent from God? This is a divine commission. He is a messenger, a divine messenger, sent from God. He's a man, that's what John makes clear. He's not an angel, he's not an appearance of a man. He is a man, but he is a messenger, a divine commissioned messenger of God. Not sent by man, but sent from God. And this is very interesting because if we go back to the Old Testament, the language of the Old Testament, who were people that were sent by God? It was the prophets. It was the prophets of God. They were sent by God. We see this in places like 2 Chronicles 24 or Deuteronomy 18. We see that the prophets of God are sent by God. They're not just self-appointed people that work their way to the top of Israel and then could speak for God. They were divinely sent by God, commissioned by God. And so John is sort of the last Old Testament prophet. I don't know if you guys have heard him referred to as that. He's sort of the last Old Testament prophet. And the reason many people say that is because if you want to turn with me to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, just a couple pages before Matthew, it's very interesting that Malachi was a prophet. He spoke for God. And he speaks of one that's going to come, that's going to be a messenger sent from God, that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And we see this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. What does it say? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So there's this one that's going to be sent by God, that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. We also see this in chapter 4, the very last couple verses. He says something very similar. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is talking about the same person. This is talking about John the Baptist. That he would come as an Elijah-like figure, the last prophet of the Old Testament, to prepare the way for the Lord. And that we can say that 
John is this one. John is this one sent by God, promised in the Old Testament. This is John the Baptist. So this is point one, that he is sent by God, divinely commissioned, promised in the Old Testament, now come in the New. And secondly, we see that not only was he sent by God, but his purpose was to be that of a witness. To be that of a witness, to testify, to bear witness, to give a report, to give a record of what? That one commentator said that in John's Gospel, the purpose of John the Baptist, his mission and his baptism, is to be that of a witness. This is the language that John the Apostle chooses to use with John the Baptist. In the other, in the other Gospel accounts, they sort of paint John in this other light. John chooses to use this language of a witness, that he's bearing witness. It comes up again and again and again. And this witnessing is sort of two-sided. It's both positive and negative. It's both pointing to salvation, but at the same time saying that there's judgment coming. And this is true of all the prophets in the Old Testament. It doesn't take long to read the Old Testament prophets to see that <laughs> there's a lot of judgment, <laughs> right? There's judgment, but there's also salvation. And so we see this, this message of salvation. We see in um, John 1, 6 through 8, we see him testify. He's bearing witness. He's testifying to the light. We see that in verse 7, that all might believe through him. He's saying, the Messiah is here. The one promised in the Old Testament has come. And he's actually saying that the Lord is here. Why? Because what did Malachi say? That this messenger would prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, who is God. Just another tick in the box to add to the divinity of Christ. That the Messiah is here. The bringer of the new and better covenant of he is here. That God is here. And John makes it a point to say, it's not about me. It's about him. He must increase. I must decrease. So this is John's positive message. He's calling people to believe. He's calling them to believe in the Son of God the Savior of the world. But negatively, he's also reminding the people of judgment. As a prophet, um, one commentator called him a messenger of ultimatum, <laughs> which is just really cool sounding. The messenger of ultimatum. That there's an ultimatum. Either you believe and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or there's wrath coming. And John makes this clear that and we don't get it as much in this language, but I think if we think about it for a minute, it sort of makes sense, just even in what John is saying here. That the fact that this light has to be witnessed to is in and of itself a condemnation. It's a condemnation. It's a judgment. I was thinking about it. Um, me and my family used to go camping when I was younger. We went to this place in Missouri. I think it's near Hannibal, Missouri. There's these caves that you can go to. It's actually um, based off of, if you've ever heard of Huck Finn, Mark Twain wrote these novels, fictional novels, and he based a lot of them around this area in Missouri. And there's these caves you can go to, and you can go hundreds of feet underground, and you're, it's, if you're claustrophobic, it's like a nightmare for anybody that's scared <laughs> of tight spaces. I mean, it's very tight. And you get to this spot, and you're a couple 
you know, maybe 100 feet down underground. And they have all these lights that they've strung up. But at one point in the tour, the tour guide turned the lights off. <laughs> and it was pitch black. So black. I mean, most of us are familiar with black, you know, at night. There's still some reflection from the moon. It was so black that you couldn't tell when your eyes were shut and when they were closed. Like that kind of black. You couldn't even tell when your eyes were open or when they were shut. The deepest black I've experienced. He said if you're there for more than two weeks, you'll actually go blind. Because of how dark it is. And it was interesting. If you were to turn a light on in that space, you wouldn't need anybody to tell you that a light was on. You wouldn't need anyone to bear witness that there was a light on. It would be self-evident. <laughs> and so it's interesting that it says that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. That that in and of itself is a condemnation. Why? The only people in that cave that couldn't see the light on would have to be someone that was blind. <laughs> and John here is saying that you all are blind. But it's a spiritual blindness. That he is bearing witness about a light. It should be self-evident. The light came into the world. But the people loved the darkness. They were spiritually blind. They were spiritually dead. And so this is a condemnation. It's a condemnation. And we see that further in verses 9 through 11. It's not only a condemnation on the world, but even on these people spoken of as his own. So we can say this, that the true light came into the world. That's what John says in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he says that he came to the world that was made through him, that the world should have known him. The, wor the world should have known him. That we can say that the word of God came into the world, the light of the world, and he was revealing God, who he is, what he came to do. And the world should have accepted him with rejoicing, with worship. But they did not. That's what John says in verse 10. The world did not know him. The world did not know him. That there's a spiritual blindness that the world had to the word. And we see this talked about in places like Romans 1. That even though what can be known about God is plain to them. They suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And one analogy I've heard, this idea of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, that the world knows there's a God. They know the truth about God, and yet they suppress it. And it's like holding a balloon underwater. It wants to keep coming up. It wants to keep surfacing. And the only way you can push the balloon down is not just to push it down once and walk away. You have to actively push it down all the time. And that's what the world does in unrighteousness. That if we, <laughs> it's crazy to think about, but in unrighteousness, we're actually just searing our consciences more and more. So that when the light does come, we're so seared, we're so hard to the light that we don't want to accept it, that we don't want to believe it, that we reject it. And that's what we see in John 1 verse 10, that the world was supposed to know him, it should have known him, and yet it did not. And then John takes it up a notch. Not only did the world not know him, but his own people did not know him. 
His own people did not know him. That the world should have known him. And more than that, his own people should have known him. His own people should have known him. What does John mean here when he uses this phrase, his own, or his own people? This would have been a reference to the Jews, to the Israelites, people born, descended from Abraham, the old covenant people of God. We see in places like Exodus 4, Israel is called the firstborn son, the children of Abraham, by birth. These are what John means when he says his own. And so the question that we should be asking is, how are these people his own? How are these people Jesus' own? What is their relationship? In what sense are they Jesus' own people? And we can say in one sense that they are physically his people, right? Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> he wasn't white. <laughs> he was a Jew. He was descended from Abraham. He was from the tribe of Judah, from Abraham. All these things that we know, offspring of Abraham. People, they were his people by blood, physically. But we have to be careful with what we say after this, right? Because there's many people out there that would say that this is sort of a second people of God. That God has two people. He has the church and he has the people of Israel, right? That he has one people over here and he has one plan for them. And he has a, another people over here and another plan for them. And so what does John mean when he uses this language of his own? Because there's much confusion about this topic. And some people would say that there is a spiritual benefit to being, or a spiritual, um, what's the, what did I write here? Um, spiritual status that comes being born from Abraham. That if you're born from Abraham, there's certain benefits that come from that. There's a certain status, a spiritual status that comes with that. And we can say in one sense, Paul says this, what benefit is there from being a Jew? He says much in every way. So in one sense, there is a benefit with being a Jew, he says, to them belong the covenants, the promises, right? There's many benefits that came with being of the Israelites, right? The people of Canaan did not have the Old Testament. The Jews did, the Israelites did. So there was some benefit, but we have to be careful with what we say there. And I say that because, again, we can't bifurcate the people of God. We can't say there's one people over here and another people over here. There is one people of God, and we'll, we'll explain that a little bit more. And so when John says he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him, we should see this as a double condemnation. That if the world did not know him, if his own people did not know him, it's a double condemnation. Why? Because this light to the nations, this Messiah was promised in the Old Testament. It was promised to Abraham that you would have one that would come from you that would bless the nations. This was promised to David, to the, all these people in the Old Testament. We, we read about it in Isaiah this morning, the suffering servant. And so the Jews should have known this. They should have known that this Messiah was coming. And so when John says his own people did not receive him, it's a double condemnation. And we see that in the Gospel of John because by the end, the Jews cry out, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. They've rejected their Messiah. They've rejected Christ. And so, 
if the world did not know him, if his own people did not receive him, who will? Who will receive him? If the world doesn't know him and his own people don't receive him, who will? John the Baptist is crying out. He's witnessing to the light. Who is going to receive the light? And we should be thinking this. Who, if the world won't, if his own people won't, who will receive him? And we see the answer in verses 12 through 13, that it is those who have been born of God. It is those who have been born of God. That this blindness that we've spoken about, this blindness to the light, that it can't be overcome by what family you're born into. It can't be overcome by whose bloodline you're from. If you were born in a Christian family, or if you were born from Abraham, whatever it is, this blindness can't be overcome by what family you're in. It can't be overcome by human will or exertion. It can't be overcome by the power of the flesh, John says. This working of our hands to the bone. This blindness can't be overcome by that. That's what John says there in verse 12 and 13. That it can't be overcome by these things. That it's only overcome by the work of God. It's only by being born of God. What does Jesus say in John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to him, a Pharisee. He says, Jesus, we know that you're a, you, that we know that you're a good teacher, a rabbi. You've done all these miracles. What does Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God. That there's this birth that's not natural, but supernatural. He'll later go on to say, you must be born of water and the Spirit. What's he talking about there? People think he's talking about baptism, that you have to be baptized to be saved. He's actually referencing Ezekiel 36, where the prophet speaks about God sprinkling his people with clean water and pouring his Spirit out upon them and giving them new hearts and new desires. And I will put my law within you, we read in, we read in Jeremiah. That this new birth is what is necessary to overcome this spiritual blindness. That we are not children of God by birth, but by rebirth. That we're not, it's not about being in the family of Abraham. It's about having the faith that Abraham had. Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness that we must be born from above. This is this new creation language that we've talked about before. That the true children of God are those that believe. Those that are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in our assurance of pardon that we read this morning. What's it say in Galatians 3? And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. That it's no longer about bloodlines. That when Christ came, he brought a new covenant. That's not about being in the family of Abraham physically. It's about having the faith that Abraham had. This is how we are brought into the new covenant. Not by what family we're in, by, by the faith that we have in Christ. This is how we come to be adopted into God's family. And he says in verse 13 that those are the ones that he gave the right to become 
children of God. That it's by faith. That it's by being born of God. And that we've been adopted into God's family. So, three things to kind of leave you with as we walk away. Three things to behold. First, we need to behold the light. We need to behold the light. That both Johns are calling us to the light. They're calling us to see the glory of the gospel. They're calling us to see the glory of Christ. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Apostle is calling us to look to the light, this witness. He's going to write this whole gospel for this one, this word that would take on flesh, that would die for our sins, as Andrew talked about, that would take on flesh, suffer the punishment that we deserved so that we might be made right with God. They're calling us to behold the light, that these things were written, as John says, so that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Secondly, we should see here, we should behold the depths of spiritual blindness. We should see the depths of spiritual blindness, that it's very blind. (laughs) There's no way around it, that the creator of the world has come into the world. We see that in John. And yet his creation rejects him. His creation does not know him. His creation does not receive him. That this Messiah, this promised seed, came to his own. And his own people rejected him. They wanted an earthly Messiah. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted someone that would deliver them physically, not deliver them from their sins. And so we see up here a picture of our spiritual blindness, and actually, we'll get to it in John chapter 9. There's this really interesting story of Jesus. He comes to a man that's born blind, physically, and he heals him. He rubs mud on his eyes. It's kind of weird. And the people are all in an uproar about this, and specifically the Pharisees, because he did it on the Sabbath. And by the end of this account, you can read it in John chapter 9, they're upset at Jesus that he healed a man of blindness on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says something very interesting. He said, this is the judgment. This is why I came, so that those that do not see may see, and those that see may be blinded. (laughs) Another way that we can think about this, Jesus says similar things in the Gospel of Luke. It is not those that are well that need a doctor, but those that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What's Jesus saying? That there's people that can actually see from their birth? There's people that actually don't need a doctor? No. Those people are the self-righteous. The Pharisees are self-righteous. They don't need Jesus. The people that think they're well, they don't need a Savior. It is only those that recognize their need for a Savior. It is only those that recognize their blindness that need to be able to see. Or rather, that um, Christ comes to. And so, in an ironic twist, the man that's born blind, by the end, is confessing Jesus. He's now spiritually, not only physically has his blindness been healed, but his spiritual blindness has been healed. And the very people that can physically see are actually the most blind by the end. And so this is really a picture of our spiritual blindness, that the Pharisees saw these miracles of Jesus, 
They saw him firsthand perform miracles. This man that was born blind. It wasn't fake. For many years he was blind. And yet, they could not see the Christ. Because they were self-righteous. So we see here the depths of spiritual blindness. And finally, I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Where the same writer of this gospel writes, in an epistle, he writes this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That this is the manner of love that God has bestowed on us. Not that we deserved it. Not that we earned it. Not that we were born in the right family. But that God loved us enough that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so many of us, maybe we can say this, that our earthly fathers have failed us. Our earthly fathers have failed us at one point or another. Maybe we grew up in a great home. That's great. Some of us have lost our fathers in this recent time. Some people have had bad fathers. They've had earthly fathers that have failed them. And we see in 1 John that our Heavenly Father will not fail us. That He's adopted us into God's family. That He's made us children of God. That we have access to the throne of grace with boldness. That sometimes in our sin, we don't want to go to God for forgiveness. We don't want to think that we're children of God. We want to say... I can't go there with boldness. I'm too much of a sinner. There's no way God could forgive me. But we're called to go there with boldness. We're called to approach the throne of grace with boldness. That we have all the liberties and privileges of the children of God. That He pities us. He protects us. He provides for us. That we have a Heavenly Father that won't fail us. And so we can behold here the manner of love that God has bestowed upon us, that by supernatural birth, we've been born into the family of God and we're sealed for the day of redemption. That we don't have to doubt our salvation because we have a great Savior. So, as we come to the end of our time here and as we come to the Lord's Supper, this leads right into it. And what do we see at the end of this our passage this morning? That there's this will of the flesh, that there's this will of man, there's this desire in us somehow to work for our salvation or to just perform religious ceremony for the sake of ceremony. That's not why we come to the table. That's not why we do it. Why? Because God has brought a new covenant. And with covenants in the scripture, think of any covenants in the scripture. Think of Noah's covenant. What does he give them? A sign of the covenant. The rainbow in the sky. All the covenants in scripture have signs that are meant to teach the people about the covenant. And one of the covenant signs that God has given us is the Lord's Supper. What do we learn in the Lord's Supper? That Christ's body was broken. That the one who was perfect, sin was placed on him. And he bore the wrath of God for us. And that his blood was spilled to cleanse us. As Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Though your sins were as red as scarlet, now they've been washed white as snow. And that this time at the Lord's table is meant to show us 
these truths. It's meant to teach us about this new covenant. That the penalties have been taken away. The curses have been removed. The curses were placed on Christ. And for those that are in Christ, we're only disciplined as children. We're not cast out as, as, um, as not children, as slaves. But we're kept as children. And so we can be reminded that Christ has drank the bitter cup, drank it to the dregs, the wrath of God, so that we might be made right with him. So, um, let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, for sending Christ, the Lamb of God, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we might be made right. And that this is only by faith. That we cannot work enough. We cannot will ourselves enough. We cannot be born into the right family. We can't do enough good things. All we can do is believe and receive all that Christ has done for sinners like us. And so this morning, may this not be an empty spiritual ritual that we do every week. May it not be just a thing that we do to get favor from you. But may it be something that changes us. That reminds us of all your grace and that by eating and drinking, we might feed on Christ and Him crucified this morning by faith. Help us, Lord. We're weak people. We need your grace. And we pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. And so, like every week, we're reminded that of the words of institution. You guys might wonder why I say these every week, but it's an important part of what we do, that we've heard the word... And now we come to the Lord's table. We come to this means of grace. And the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he blessed it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, this cup of the new covenant, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we come, we not only remember... We not only look forward, but we now proclaim the Lord's death in our own lives and to the world. So come as you are able, and we'll partake together. So this bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all our sins.
And this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion with the blood of Christ? So take, drink, remember, and believe that Christ's own blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Amen. We'll now respond by singing There is a Fountain. So if you want to stand with me, turn in your hymnal, we'll sing together.
to the time where we respond to the Lord in an act of worship um, by giving a portion of what God has given us back to Him. Joyfully, with reverence, hoping that He will use these gifts to multiply His kingdom and the work of God on the earth. So let's pray for them this morning. Lord, we thank You for everything that You've given us, that You're not only the Creator of us, but the sustainer of us, and that you providentially provide for us everything that we have. And we're called to be content in all things, whether in poverty or in plenty. And this morning, we give a portion of what you've given us back to you, not because you need it. You're the giver of all things. You've created all things, not because you need it, but as an act of worship and so that your kingdom might advance on this earth through the proclamation of the gospel. And we support that in a small way here. So would you take these, would you use them for your kingdom, and would you um, help us in this act to rely on you for provision for everything that we have. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Would you all stand with me as we sing the benediction? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Thessalonians, this great blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, that, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.